Hello and welcome to another episode of A Dash of Science. I'm your host, Chris. Each week we discuss a new topic in science, engineering, math, and even history, breaking it down so that everyone can enjoy and understand. So sit back, relax, and enjoy A Dash of Science. citizen scientists welcome back this is chris hey this is carrie and we are in the third and final part of our uh isaac newton series our bio scientist scientist bio our bio trio yes 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 before we get started however just some quick notes so nasa day of remembrance which was originally scheduled to be february 1st has been moved to uh, February 7th, I believe it is, due to the shutdown, which it's not shut down now, but uh, at the time that it was moved, it still was. Uh, And if you don't know what NASA Day of Remembrance is, it's for the Apollo 1, Challenger, and Columbia. Uh, This week is the 52-year anniversary since the Apollo 1 fire that took the life of veteran astronaut Gus Grissom, first American spacewalker Ed White, and rookie astronaut Roger uh, Chaffee, uh, January 27th in 1967. So, uh, yeah, it's a very long time ago, almost uh, just over five decades. It's so, hard to think we were doing science five decades ago. Yeah, it, I mean, it's crazy that to think that we were doing space stuff that long ago, but to see like where we're at in space now, because there was such a long uh, time frame of not a lot of uh, advancement uh, after the initial uh, moon landing. But uh, it's also the 33-year anniversary since the NASA Shuttle Orbiter Mission STS-51-L, the 10th flight of the Space Shuttle Challenger, which broke apart 73 seconds into flight, killing all seven astronauts, uh, consisting of Commander Francis Scobie, Pilot Michael Smith, uh, Mission Specialist Ronald McNair, Mission Specialist Ellison uh, Onazuka, Mission Specialist Judith Resnick, Payload Specialist Gregory Jarvis and Payload Specialist and Teacher Krista McAuliffe. Uh, yeah, that was the first and as far as I know, only NASA mission to have a, a, I guess, civilian teacher on board as part of a publicity slash kind of STEM outreach thing. Uh, and unfortunately, that went tragic. Do you think they didn't do it again because of the first time? Uh, yeah, NASA uh, kind of rocks back and forth in how risk adverse it is, but uh, after the the Challenger explosion, they became extremely risk averse. So I imagine putting another civilian on a mission after that was probably not only what is it a no, but it wasn't even a hell no because it was nobody was stupid enough to recommend it again. You know what I mean? Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, and lastly, it is a 16 year anniversary of the destruction of the shuttle Columbia during STS 107, uh, which was just 16 minutes from landing, resulting in the death of Commander Rick Husband. Uh, Mission Specialist 1, David Brown. Mission Specialist 4, Laurel Clark. Mission Specialist 2, Kapana Chawla. Payload Commander Michael Anderson and Pilot William McCool. Uh, And Payload Specialist 1, I think it was Elon Ramon. Ramon? I don't, I think so. I'm not sure on the pronunciation of his name, but... Uh, yeah, so that one I actually remember. I don't know. Do you remember that one? I don't remember that one. I didn't actually know that it did it on the way back in. I thought it exploded on the way up. Uh, that was Challenger that exploded on the way up. 
uh, Columbia was due to an issue with uh, foam, essentially insulation foam coming off and hitting the fin uh, when it came down and and, ch- and damaged the heat shielding. Uh, but that was that was when I was in uh, Moscow during my freshman year. No, what year was that? Uh, I think it was my sophomore year in college, the first time through. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that one I actually I actually remember. So yeah, NASA Day of Remembrance moved, and we will actually be doing a special episode uh, in more in depth on those three uh, missions and, and travesty uh, next week. So make sure you come back and listen to that. Um, also, NASA's Parker Solar Probe made its first trip around the sun. Woo-hoo! So that's pretty cool. The uh, uh, it has twenty four planned orbits. So launched August 12th of last year, and uh, with its first close flyby of November 5th, uh, was about 15 million miles away from the sun, and so far we have received 17 gigabits of science data. Ooh. So it'll be pretty is, interesting. Is that a lot of, of uh, bits? Yes. Well, gigabits, a bit is a zero or a one, so uh, 17 gigabits is, is quite a lot considering how far it is and, and how long it's been out. That's awesome. Uh, and of course, it wasn't sending back data the entire time, just once it got there. Well, that would make sense. Yep. The goal is to provide new data on solar activity so that we can better forecast major space weather events that impact life on Earth. Like what? Like, uh, you know, studying the corona by tracing the flow of energy that heats and accelerates the corona and solar wind. What is a corona? Uh, the corona is the plasma that surrounds the sun and other stars, and it extends uh, millions of miles kind of out into space. So when you see like a solar eclipse and you see how they darken out the the middle of it and you just see that kind of that, uh, I don't know, hazy glow around the outside. Yes. That's the corona. Okay. So yeah. So that's what they're going to be studying. That uh, sounds exciting. Yeah. Yeah. We uh, don't have... I mean, we have some data on solar science, but it's not a heavily, I guess, financed area of research in comparison with, like, planetary science. Uh, So it's pretty exciting to have a mission that's dedicated just for doing that. That is exciting. Yeah. Also, uh, just a reminder, uh, we're doing our contest or giveaway drawing, whatever you want to call it, uh, for Patreon Drive. You can go to patreon.com slash dash of science and you can support us at the one, two, or five dollar mark. And for that, you will get double your money's worth of uh, tickets into our drawing for a Coffee Gator 32 ounce stainless steel French press. Uh, we have one. Uh, I've used it. It's amazing. Have you used it or had any coffee from it? I don't I can't drink coffee, remember? Well, you drink coffee, just not straight coffee. I drink, drink espressos like, espresso with a bunch of sugary and, stuff yeah. in them. <laughs> but uh, it's pretty sturdy. It's pretty good. Uh, and you can also go to coffeegator.com and use the discount code QUARK, Q-U-A-R-K, to get 15% off whatever you purchase and also help support the show that way. All right. Awesome. Also, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to the Podfix Network, which is our new network that we joined this month. Uh, The other 15 shows that are on there are truly amazing, and they've made us feel so welcome. They've been running promos for our shows, giving us call-outs, giving us uh, mentions on Twitters. Uh, So I just wanted to say thank you so much for making us feel welcome and for just being awesome people. And there's so many good shows uh, on Podfix Network. So if you check that out at Podfix Network. Dot com. You can look at some of those other shows. They uh, even said nice things about me. They even said nice things about you. You got your own shout out. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, uh, why don't we jump in to our final uh, discussion on 
Newton. Newton, not the fig kind. Uh, I what believe, a shame. Yes, you wish it was Fig Newtons, don't you? I do. Why Why have we not been eating Fig Newtons while maybe, we talk about Isaac Newton? Maybe we'll do this. You know, nobody has ever uh, contacted us about who invented Fig Newtons. I'm kind of disappointed. Yeah, we'll have to look it up just so we know. We'll do a science bio of the inventor of uh, Fig Newtons. Yeah, I think we could do a three-parter. <laughs> I bet we could stretch it out if we tried. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when we left off, we talked about how Newton had published his papers on the theory of color, discussing the idea of kind of a spectrum and kind of defining what that actually is. And this is this had major consequences, major blowback for him. Uh, many of the conflicts he had at this time were people either refusing outright to believe his results, essentially calling him a liar or that he was faking his uh, his experiments. That's crazy. Uh, denying the existence of a spectrum, uh, which knowing what we know today seems crazy, but that's kind of par for the course uh, in this time frame of science, apparently. Um, yeah, that's like something they teach to grade school kids now. Yep. Yes, it is. And it's something you can easily see. It's like before this point, nobody ever once just shined light through a prism or a crystal, right? Yeah. Well, didn't they say that uh, prisms were toys at this time? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if even that, they didn't, I don't think they had a whole lot of use other than like mysticals, you know, fake science. I guess it wasn't even fake science then. It was just, you know, magic. <laughs> yeah, my favorite kind. Yes. Uh, others criticized his results, claiming his spectrum wasn't as long as he said. He had a short spectrum. Ooh, that's <laughs> Which not can nice. mean so many different things. Uh, in many of these discussions, it said initially he was pretty polite, but it did eat at him. He was extremely disheartened uh, and felt that his only options were to either not put out anything new or to be a slave to defending it. So those are pretty uh, strong feelings. <laughs> he does have the feels. Yeah. And this first one, and it's kind of crazy because we'll talk a little bit about kind of the different people. Uh, Anthony Lucas, 1678 uh, Newton. So he published his first papers on color. Um, and this was basically the discovery that he'd read to the Royal Society when he became inducted about the existence and aspects of uh, light and spectrum. Uh, and it's speculated that the resulting criticisms kind of left a permanent mark on Newton's psyche. Oh, that's uh, a shame. Yeah, he was, you know, he was already scared. I mean, it's like 30 years from when he started doing things to when he first started publishing anything. So uh, it was really hard to find information about the correspondence with Anthony Lucas specifically. Uh, so I had to go create an account and read an actual historic account of the correspondence themselves. And I found a cool site. It was called uh, Journal Storage, JSTOR.org, and it lets you create a free account and you can look up to six free articles a month, uh, which I only needed one now. So that was perfect for me. Sounds pretty perfect. <laughs> yeah. And so I was reading through it and it was talking about kind of some other people uh, as well as Lucas. And as I suspected, this first major conflict uh, was really hard on Newton because of his kind of long-term fear of publishing uh, any of his work. Uh, and Newton went so far as to consider a paper which consisted of basically uh, he he'd presented his, his paper before on light and getting all this correspondence from these dis different people, arguing with him, whatever. And so he wanted to publish a paper that essentially just consisted of eight basic questions that would be subject to experimental answer uh, to test his theory of color, almost like a challenge. But he knew what these results would bring because the only experiments that would answer these questions are the ones that he did that made him come to his own conclusion. 
Uh, well, that's not very helpful. Right, well, I mean, it, he did it as a way to walk them through his methodology, basically, so that they would go through the same steps he did and, in his mind, come to the same conclusion that he did. Uh, and so this would kind of lead the dissenters down to follow the same steps, basically. Uh, but, like, some of the people that he was... Uh, corresponding with were a little dense (laughs) and like uh, one guy I guess responded uh, you know after the idea of this well why don't you just provide us your experiments uh, and tell us what the conclusions are which was what the first paper was 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 they were arguing about (laughs) so uh, you know really I don't know I'll hold that off but uh, so Anthony Lucas was a just basically a, a, a Jesuit. Is that how you pronounce that? Jesuit? Jes, Jesuit? 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 Jew? Is that the same thing? I'm uh, not sure. Yeah, I've, I've heard the term, but I, that's not my area of expertise, so I don't really know. Forgive me. Uh, but he wasn't like a, as far as I could tell, like a scientist or a major, like, prominent mathematician. I don't know. I couldn't really find a whole, even just looking up his name didn't give me a lot of uh a lot of like background on who this person was. So I'm surprised that he's like named as one of the major conflicts. And I think it was because he was like the primary uh, person that he was in, um, I guess, contact with during this time frame. Cause I think his, his correspondence with Lucas lasted like four or six years. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, well, I guess that's the time for giving mail at that point was yeah, a little longer. That's true. Uh, also, another guy during this time period was uh, Franciscus Linus. He was a professor of Hebrew and mathematics. And at this time, Linus was approaching about 80 years old. Uh, and he'd led a long, like, honorable career. Uh, but at this stage, he was kind of out there. And one record that I read described his letters as a, quote, letter of an old fool, end quote. Wow. Uh, he's one of the ones that just basically outright denied that the experiment with the prism could work the way that Newton had described it, even though he didn't actually ever do it himself. So, uh, you know, I don't know. The The journal article I was reading is called Newton Defends His First Publication, The Newton-Lucas Correspondence, and essentially creates a story that reminds me a lot of like a Facebook conversation with anti-vaxxers or climate change deniers. Uh-oh. Yeah, so, which really proves to me that this kind of anti-science thing that we're dealing with right now isn't new. It's just kind of like the first time in history that so many people have had an active global pedestal to kind of spout their narrative about science. Yeah, now that everyone's on mm-hmm. the internet, it's easier to see everybody's point of view. Yeah, it's actually kind of a bit disheartening for me because it means that we aren't fighting like a novel, strange, modern occurrence of anti-science but uh, a historic trend throughout all of humanity. And that's very daunting. Everybody's always hated science. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, Another guy, actually, this most famous person that he's conflicted with, uh, conflicted with, (laughs) that he's argued with is Robert Hooke. uh, Oh, I've heard that name. Yeah. And he actually, he went round and round with him about the, uh, the prism and, you know, questions about reflection and refraction and deflection and all that stuff in that same time frame. But what I really want to talk about is some of his later stuff because it's really gets to the point of like the heart of the conflict that he had with Newton. So uh, Hook discovered the cell. 
Uh, he well, helped cool. established experimentation as a fundamental basis of science, and he pioneered work in optics and gravitation, paleontology, architecture, and half a dozen other areas. And he's probably most notably known, at least for physicists, as uh, the creator of Hooke's Law, which defines the relationship between the stress and the strain in a spring. No, interesting. Uh, so it's pretty much the foundation of like making accurate clocks and watches. Uh, and Hooke's Law is like, so if you take like a spring that's at rest, right, mm-hmm. uh, and you either uh, compress it or you elongate it by pulling it, if you measure the displacement from where it is normally at rest, uh, it basically just says that that is proportional to how much force your spring has. I guess that makes sense. Yep. So it's pretty fundamental. Uh and there is a belief that his disagreement with Newton actually resulted in most of the credit for the works that he'd done uh, kind of being ignored or forgotten for a long time. Um, and I read that he had, there was only one known painting of him, uh, oh, a yeah. hook, and it was destroyed shortly after his death, supposedly by Newton himself. Oh, wow. Uh, and the Royal Society has acknowledged that the story exists, uh, but they don't really confirm or deny it. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, Newton and Hooke's relationship, uh, I guess that probably sums up the relationship. He died and Newton destroyed the only uh, piece of uh, proof of what he looked like in all of existence. (laughs) That's kind of low. Right. Do you think he knew at the time? Uh, You know, in doing more research, I actually want to talk about it because it's not really science, kind of on Robert Hooke, but it's, it's kind of interesting. So... Their, Newton and Hooke's relationship went real south around like 1686 uh, over a controversy over Hooke's contributions to Newton's theory of gravity, right? So uh, shortly after 1703, when Hooke passed away, Newton was elected the president of the Royal Society, and Newton oversaw a move to a new physical location for the society, and it's assumed that the portrait went missing at that point, uh, but some... Uh, some people also claim that Newton was kind of ruthless and overbearing and held grudges for a long time, which is interesting because that's kind of a huge uh, contradiction from earlier reports about how he was relatively polite uh, you yeah. know, in, in some of his stuff. So I think it's probably a matter of what time frame he's in and how his personality was. But uh, so here's what I find really interesting. So there's these stories about how this one portrait was destroyed and it may or may not have been Newton that did it, right? Right. Uh, There isn't actually any strong evidence that the portrait ever existed to begin with. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. There's only throughout all of history and all of writing, there are only two references at all to this portrait. Uh, and the first one, I think, is kind of reaching. So I guess Hook kept diaries of his daily activities for a while. Okay. And so he wrote on the 16th of October in 1674, uh, quote, at Garraway's, left off taking tobacco, Mr. Bonust drew picture, end quote. Interesting. Okay, so somehow they got uh, that, that, that's a that's a portrait out of that, I guess. Uh, I, I guess that's kind of a reach. Yeah, and there's no reference to who Mr. Bonust is, as B-O-N-U-S-T, uh, but some people think it was actually referencing an artist who was alive at that time in that area named Bownest, B-O-W-N-E-S-T, who did do portraits, so that might have been part of their conclusion, but there's nothing tying any of that together, right? It's just yeah, somebody no, read a thing and thought something, uh, <laughs> which isn't very scientific in my opinion. 
the other reference to this portrait is, I guess there was a German visitor who kind of made a passing reference to seeing the portrait of Hook, which in his writings he spelt as H-O-O-C-K uh, instead of H-O-O-K-E. So that's a kind of a weird misspelling of that's his name. That's a very weird misspelling. That's not even like a right? language barrier. And uh, he said he saw it in 1710. Uh, in the council room of the Royal Society, along with uh, Boyle, which is another prominent scientist. Uh, however, no other person has ever mentioned seeing this in the council room to include a detailed accounting in 1702 of all the portraits by James Young, who mentions a portrait of Robert Hook, or sorry, of uh, Theodore Hack, H-A-A-K. So if you look at the misspelling of the name H-O-O-C-K and then it's H-A-A-K, like mm. maybe he just, because of that language barrier, he misheard the name and just assumed that it would be Hook since at that time Hook was kind of a, you know, I don't know if I want to say prominent, but he wasn't a nobody, right? I guess so. That's still pretty reaching. It is. But so those are the only two references at all to this supposed portrait. Uh like in the inventory of his possessions after Hook's death, didn't mention a portrait. Uh, the first two biographies, which were written uh, within the first couple of years after his death, don't mention anything about a portrait. And people have gone through like the, the minutes of the Royal Society, which usually mentions whenever they've been gifted anything, doesn't mention anything about a portrait. So I don't know. It's kind of seems like a made up story to me. That does sound like a made up story. It sounds like a uh... Was it called Scuttlebutt? Yes, Scuttlebutt. It's a great word. Thank you for using it. You're welcome. I <laughs> thought you'd like that. But uh, so I kind of glossed over the actual controversy here because I found that portrait story so interesting. But so the actual controversy, which I said was over uh, Hook's potential contributions to Newton's theory of gravity, which is a very nice way of putting it. Uh, so essentially, this all started with uh, Johann Kepler. Are you familiar with Kepler? I've heard the name, but I can't put a finger on it. So Kepler has the famous uh, laws of planetary motion, essentially, that kind of describe a planet's period uh, and and just stuff like that, right? I didn't know planets had periods. They do. Uh, and yeah, I'm not going down that road. <laughs> uh, so... He is the guy that over the course of decades hand calculated all of the geometric facts about the movements of the planets. Okay. Uh, and there wasn't any actual theory to explain these observations. Uh, it'd be almost a century before the inverse square law really became into being. Uh, one of the primary reasons they couldn't define it is because the math literally had not yet been invented. <laughs> That's a good reason. Yeah. So, uh, and if you don't know, the inverse square law just basically says if you double the distance between two bodies, uh, the gravitational pull between them is reduced by a factor of four. No. Oh, okay. So that's, that's interesting. That's all it is. It's it's a pretty simple thing that we couldn't math out at the time because, like I said, the math didn't exist. Uh, however astronomer by the name of Edmund Halley. Uh, Don't know that one. I'm pretty sure this is the same Halley as Halley's Comet. Oh, that's uh, right. But he essentially guessed an inverse square law solution without mathing it out first, like I said, because again, the math didn't yet exist. Uh, and he spoke about his idea with Robert Hooke. And Hooke agreed that that actually absolutely made sense, and he claimed that he actually already had a mathematical proof that would show that it was true, which is amazing. That is amazing. Uh, so 
he unfortunately like couldn't like he couldn't produce it like months and months went by he kept saying he's going to get this proof that he quote already had uh to do it and he just he just never you know delivered it so after several months uh Hallie went to see newton and newton also looked at it and said you know what that is right and guess what i also you know i guess he probably didn't say also because he didn't know about the conversation with hook but he says i do have a proof uh, that can show that this to be true, but I can't find it right now. Uh, which honestly, That's so weird. it is. But I mean, given with Newton, the amount of stuff that Newton worked on, like I can believe that. I mean, I can't even imagine like what his work area would have looked like. Oh yeah, you they know, say there's a correlation between messiness and intelligence. I'm gonna go with that. You've seen my office on a regular occasion, so I, I like uh, that description. You have too much messy for your intellect. <laughs> Thanks, appreciate that. I think you just called me dumb. Uh, sorta. <laughs> but uh, so. He did, however, after a few months, actually present the proof to Halley. So, uh, and this proof ended up basically being the seed of Newton's most famous publication. Uh, some might call it his masterpiece, uh, the Philosophy Naturalist Principa Mathematica. Principa Mathematica. Yes. Uh, so, have you heard of that? I'm assuming by the repeat of what I said. Uh, I read about it when I read my biography. Okay, yeah. So it's it's essentially a major work, right? It is. Uh, and it basically is his laws of motion is what that is. Uh, so Hook, of course, found this out and accused Newton of plagiarism. Yeah, for the non-seeable right. proof. I mean, not because he'd shown Newton his work or because there was any physical way it could have happened, but, you know, just because it came out at, like, sort of the same time uh, mm. that he was also supposedly working on it. That's weird. Uh, coincidentally. <laughs> Luckily, no one believed him, primarily because he never really did actually produce his uh, version of it for comparison. So he was just a jerk. Right. And also, Newton had invented math that didn't previously exist within his proof. <laughs> you know, I could invent math. Right, yes, but his math worked <laughs> and changed all of, you know, everything. Uh, <laughs> it also led him to create, like, not only the theory of gravity, but all of motion, which are all things that Hook had, like, no concept of. So you'd think that if Hook also did this thing and, and Newton stole it from him, uh, that Hook would have, it would have been Hook's law of gravity, right? And Hook's laws of motion. You would think so. Yeah, but you know, that's not what happened. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so there's a quote from Newton, which I think really, really sums up this period of his life. It says, uh, Mr. Optry, which I assume is just so when they wrote letters, they would uh, it would go through correspondence. So they would send it to a central person who was like the person who introduced them. And okay. that person would send them on. So he says, Mr. Optry, I understand you have a letter from Mr. Lucas for me. Pray for Bear to send me anything more of that nature. Basically just said, please, please stop sending me this stuff. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> it is pretty funny. But uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, and then we're going to come back and talk about Newton's later life and and maybe some alchemy a little bit later after that. Ooh, alchemy. I like alchemy. Okay, Morgan, we're going. What's the promo? Hurry. People have to listen. Hey, Mike. Hey, Morgan. What should we watch? I don't know. Something good? I don't think so. I think we should watch something terrible. Why? What could we possibly gain from watching bad television? I don't know. Maybe humor? Maybe some insight? 
Maybe we'll gather some infinite Infinite knowledge? Holy smokes! Let's do it right now! Uh, maybe we should just tune into Bad Reception with Mike and Morgan. Okay. Well, we love you. Listen to our show. <laughs> love you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> hey, Carrie. What is the best thing ever? Um, Dice. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you said that. That's the right answer. I knew dice, it was the right answer. Dice is awesome. Dice is awesome. Dice are awesome. Dice be awesome. Dice be awesome. I'm going with dice be awesome. I like that. And uh, you know who has the best dice ever? Who? Adventure Dice. Tell me more. Adventure Dice makes all sorts of cool colored dice in sets that you can buy, but also on top of just dice, they make really cool custom made chain link dice bags. Chain mail? chain mail dice bags that's amazing it is they've got uh three different versions one is a black one uh one is a straight uh steel one like steel colored regular metal colored and one of them has awesome rainbow links at the top that they call their bards bag i want rainbow links i bet you do they've got two different sizes of each one and you can check those out at adventuredice.ca make sure you use your discount code quark q-u-a-r-k for a discount and to help support the show hey carrie welcome back welcome back did you have fun I did. I had a great break. All right. We're going to talk some more about Newton now. Are you all right with that? Is it Newton time? It's Newton time. It's Newton. I don't think that's a thing. I, I think know. that was his theme song. I don't think I can sing any more of that without paying royalties. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably true. So tell me, do you know who John Locke is? Mm, he's a philosopher, isn't he? He is a philosopher. And guess what? What? He became friends with Newton. I don't find that surprising. Yep. Uh, during Newton's residency in London, Locke was, you know, as you said, the famous philosopher and political theorist of the time, known as the father of uh, British empiricism. British empiricism? What's that? It's a good question. I don't know, because that's not my field. Oh, well, good job. <laughs> uh, I was hoping you could tell me. Aren't you a philosophy person? Uh, I did take philosophy as a minor, which is probably why I remember his name, but I don't remember anything about it. Oh, man. You failed me. You were my expert in philosophy and you didn't bring your A game. I did not. That's fine. Whatever. Anyways, so Locke was very interested in Newton's theories on motion. Uh, and one of the few friends that he maintained and kept long enough into his later years to actually be concerned for him uh, in his later life. He thought it was a great disservice that a man of Newton's contributions was basically being forced to survive off the meager uh, salary of a college fellowship and, and professorship. Uh, while other colleagues of lesser standing were being promoted to high levels within the church and the state. Uh, so, he didn't do well with the church, though, did he? Uh, well, it's, it's interesting because he's got a lot of theories on religion uh, that, I mean, I've kind of shied away from his religious thought because it doesn't, I don't know, it's not a lot of interesting things to fill in there, so people should go check that on his own because he does have interesting thoughts on it, but I, I wouldn't say... He's in bad position with the church, but he's not, like, in great standing either. He had a lot of disagreements, basically, on how God works. I uh, can imagine. There's basically an idea at the time that God created a perfect world that did not need any form of uh, interaction from God, and Newton highly disagreed with that that concept. I can understand uh, I that. He was quoted as saying something like, the world was a well-round watch that God occasionally needed to crank up or something like that. But yeah, so I don't know. It's hard to say in, in times like this when science and theology were so intermixed, right? That's true. But yeah, so 
interesting thing about Locke, like I said, he cared about Newton. Uh, he even almost succeeded in getting Newton appointed as the provost of the King's College, which uh, would have been cool and also illegal because apparently the law requires that position to be held by a priest, So, oh. uh, which Newton was not. <laughs> no. Uh, and Newton, in his older uh, years, was kind of suffering from a lot of different issues, one of which was kind of uh, Insanity. a delusion. <laughs> Sometimes one of them was kind of a delusion of like uh, that people were out to get him, you know. It's uh, called paranoia, honey. Yes, paranoia, and he was convinced that his friend Montagu was behind uh, Newton's inability to get a higher standing, uh, which was sad because Montagu was actually actively championing him and eventually was responsible for Newton obtaining uh, a pretty prestigious position. Well, good. Uh, do you know what that position was? Mm, Can you guess? No. It was Warden of the Royal Mint. Yeah, that was totally what I was thinking. Yes. I mean, that's I would. I mean, it sounds cool, right? It does sound cool. Like <laughs> uh, maybe the anything sounds cool to me. He gets know. to keep mint in jail. Yes, the mint and fig. <laughs> so in 1694, uh, Montagu was appointed the Chancellor of the uh, Exchequer which is a fancy term for uh, head of the UK Treasury. Oh, all right. Uh, yeah, or at least the UK now. I don't think it was the UK then. but uh, And he essentially appointed Newton Warden of the Royal Mint in 1696. He wrote him and said, I am very glad that I at last can give you a good proof of my friendship and the esteem the king has of your merits. Very which, cool. Which was rather nice considering that Newton was like, no, you're like inventing a conspiracy theory about him about how he's trying to screw newton over or whatever uh but it was enough to convince newton that his friendship was genuine uh and they actually lived together and i'm gonna say this in quotes the most intimate of friends until montagu's death in 1715 i don't know what that means i mean that could just mean they were close friends it could mean that they had a bedfellows uh, they could have a you know a sexual relationship i don't know that there's nothing on that at all and the way that things are written at that time it's kind of hard to tell right yeah um so i'll just leave that as it is and you guys can make your own assumptions from there i could explain why he wasn't chasing tail mm -hmm. but uh the post was meant to be uh sinecure sinecure that's a new word that i learned i told you about earlier which i thought was <laughs> interesting because it literally means little work but great standing <laughs> that is great. But of course, Newton is Newton, uh, and he took it quite seriously, which is good because at the time when he took over that position, the currency had been seriously weakened from uh, basically attempts at uh, counterfeiting and stuff. And so the efforts to kind of recall and remake, remake all the stamped silver had been seriously mismanaged and was actually subject to a lot of fraud from people within the, I guess, the mint is my guess interesting I mean, how do you have fraud from uh, handling a project like that if it's not from within right that makes sense yeah so newton of course personally intervened uh putting his chemical knowledge and math knowledge uh into play and was actually uh behind what was known as the great recoinage of 1696 oh i had a great coinage the other night I don't know what that means. I don't either. <laughs> uh, but anyways, after that success, he was given the post of master of the mint. Uh, I don't really know like what the tier of positions are at the mint, like how far above warden of the mint is master of the mint, but it basically doubled his salary from 600 pounds to 1,200 to 1,500 pounds. Uh, wow. So 
at the time that was a considerable amount. Uh, but during this time, counterfeiting, I guess, was a treasonous crime, but really, really hard to prosecute because it was hard to gather evidence of uh, stuff. So, of course, Newton took it, uh, you know, well, since he becomes very obsessive about his work. And it resulted in the conviction of 28 counterfeiters from June of 1698 to December of 1699. That's pretty uh, crazy. Yeah. So he just went after it. It's like he took it as a personal affront or something that people would dare counterfeit coins while he was warden or master. Well, what else was he going to do with that position? Yeah, I don't know. Well, it's interesting because while holding this position, he was still holding his chair at the university, uh, and, you know, I guess that just didn't involve much work. I don't know how he was doing his teaching at the time, which he was required to do, but... Well, I thought you said no one came to his classes. Well, I guess that's true. <laughs> uh, there was one interesting case that he was involved in that I just want to talk about, just because I find it interesting, and it was against a man by the name of William Chal- Chaloner. Chaloner, that's how I'm going to pronounce it. Uh, basically he had this scheme that he would set up fake conspiracies with Catholics uh, and then he would turn the people in that, that he had entrapped. Uh, and he made enough money at that that he basically walked around pretending to be a noble gentleman. Um, and then later he accused the Mint of providing tools to counterfeiters and he proposed through a, a petition that he be allowed to inspect the Mint's process in order to improve them. And he created this system that he pushed uh, for them to adopt, basically his plan of a recoinage that would, in his uh, words, prevent counterfeiting. Uh, but during all this process, he was actually counterfeiting himself. That's crazy. Yeah. So uh, I guess Newton put him on trial, sent him to prison. But because of all of the, the standing and money that he earned, the connections that he made, he was able to, to get acquitted and released. That maneuver where you send your friends down for your crime is still pretty common. Yeah. Uh, but remember how they were talking earlier about how Newton had a grudge, had a hard time like letting go of grudges? Mm-hmm. Well, apparently, at least in this case, that was true because Newton was pissed off. So he started a second investigation into him for a different incident and gathered enough evidence that uh, Challoner was convicted of high treason, hanged, drawn, and quartered. <laughs> Wow. (laughs) Yeah, so don't mess with Newton. I mean, he's dead now, so he's probably not going to do anything to you, but like at that time, don't mess with Newton. Beware of the Isaac. Uh, And during this position, he also led uh, the recoining of the Scottish coins in 1707 after Scotland and England kind of became one unit. Uh, And he was responsible from the move from the silver standard to the gold standard. Like he had a lot of contributions to the nation, to history outside of just like all of his math and science stuff. It's kind of like he really did like literally everything. He just couldn't not make things better, I guess. Well, it's a good drive to have. It is. It is. And uh, so he kind of started off not very wealthy, but at this point his salary... Uh, made him very wealthy and so much in fact that apparently he lost like 20,000 pounds which is the equivalent I looked up to three million dollars today in the collapse of the South Sea bubble which was the shipping enterprise that had like trading rights and whatever Uh, but apparently it just kind of was an annoyance to him imagine losing three million dollars in a venture and just kind of being annoyed yeah I wish we had that kind of money he's just like I don't want to talk about it that was that was the extent of that (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm sure he didn't take failure well. No, no, he didn't. 
So you know what we've avoided talking about uh, for the most part during this entire series on Newton? What's that? Alchemy. Yeah, we have. We have. We're going to talk about it now, though. I don't want to talk. Shh. Don't speak. So we talked in the first episode that we did on Newton, uh, part one, about how he was exposed to alchemy kind of at an early uh, age with the works of Jacob uh, Bohem. You remember that? He had the books where he would just write everything down. I do remember Uh, that. And uh, he practiced a lot of chemistry in his early life and a lot of alchemy in his later life. Uh, He... He kept notebooks on temperatures from melting ice to kitchen fires, and he wrote a chemical paper called uh, De Nature Acidorium, which I am guessing, based off of my awesome uh, fluency in Latin, means uh, nature of acids. That would make sense. Yes, that's what I'm guessing. But yeah, so he did a lot of a lot of this stuff. Uh, like he put up furnaces and and worked for months in search of the philosopher's tincture, also known as uh, the philosopher's stone. I'm not really sure why they call it the philosopher's stone, since it was supposed to be. I don't know. Do you know what this is? I don't really know what it is. My only reference to it's Harry Potter, which is not accurate. Well, I guess it sort of is, but it, it did other things in that than it was supposedly uh, supposed to do in alchemy. Essentially, it's a legendary substance that turns lead into gold. Oh, well, that would make sense, I guess. It's a lot more simple than I expected. Yeah, well, simple in explaining, not so simple in the doing. In obtaining? Yes. So why lead into gold? Why not? Well, do you have any ideas why? Well, because gold is more awesome than lead. Well, I mean, I know why lead into gold, but why lead and not something else? Why not uh, silver or carbon? Or I would assume it's got something to do with its purity. Uh, it has to do with the fact that, one, lead was abundant and cheap, at least in comparison. Uh, gold was obviously more rare and valuable. But also the fundamental difference between elements. Do you know what that is? No. It's the number of protons they possess. When you look at them on the uh, table of elements, periodical, periodical chart of elements, uh they're listed in order of how many protons they have, their atomic weight, right? Atomic mass. I actually knew this. Uh, so lead has 82 and mm-hmm. gold has 79. Okay. So theoretically, by simply losing three protons, bam, lead to gold. Easy peasy. Easy peasy. Only that sort of stuff changes like everything about its compound. Well, I mean, yeah, which is what you're trying to do. But the problem is, is that the number of protons you have, which we know now, can't be changed by chemical means. So you can't just make a solution and dip lead in it and change how many protons it has. That's Uh, true. Physics can do it nowadays quite easily, uh, but we don't. Do you have any idea why? I don't know why. Well, lead is highly stable. So the amount of energy it takes to remove three protons is actually considerably more expensive than the value of the gold that you would get. Oh, I guess that would make sense. So it's kind of an interesting happenstance of natural laws versus kind of the arbitrary human value. If you were to value gold more, then it would be worth doing. But just because in nature of how hard it is to do this thing, it's not worth it. Yeah, it's interesting how we chose which precious metals we like and which we don't. It's because it's purdy. It's soft. It's shiny. But uh, so for all of you out there, you potential alchemists slash physicists, here is Chris's recipe for making gold. Uh, Instead of using lead, though, we're going to use mercury because why do anything if you can't do it with a toxic carcinogen? Toxins. Uh, (laughs) So step one. Wait, wait. How easy is it to get mercury? I don't know. They sell like monitors. I think you can buy it on Amazon. 
Oh, okay. Continue. I mean, you can buy lead on Amazon too, but... Uh, so step one, get mercury. Step two, slam a slow neutron into it. I'm sorry, a what? <laughs> a slow neutron. Oh, just yeah, a, I got one of those in my it's pocket. It's just a few electron volts. Uh, you can get it from any fission reaction. It'll do. Uh, after you do that, you keep doing it until your mercury captures the neutron. Uh, and then you discard your neutrino like a responsible uh, alchemist. And voila, you have one atom of gold. Wow, that's exciting. Yep. Wait, how much mercury did we start with? Uh, well, it doesn't really matter how much you start with if you're only slamming one neutron into it. I, I guess so. So there you go. I just made everybody rich. Please send me gold. Yes. We, we wish for gold <laughs> yes. in return. Uh, I do not, however, want your power bill. You can keep that. Uh, among other books that Newton studied at the, at the time uh, that he was doing alchemy was Flamsteed's Explication of Hieroglyphic Figures. Ooh, that sounds exciting. I don't know what that means, but it sounds awesome. Uh, and also, William, uh, I'm going to say Worths. It's Y-W-O-R-T-H-S. So I assume one of those two letters is silent because I cannot pronounce a Y and a W next to each other. Uh, Yaworth, I guess. <laughs> uh, so William Worth's Processus Mystery Magni Magni Philosophicus. I feel like your Latin's getting better. It is. Uh, also, those two Magnis are not the same word because the first one has two eyes and the second one only has one. Or it's a typo. I don't know. <laughs> tricky, tricky, tricky. <laughs> Not my typo, though. I typed that one exactly. Uh-huh. So Newton at this time was kind of already known for having a fear of criticism, which we talked about, uh, and for being kind of standoffish and a little quirky. Uh, so to make that better, in his later years, uh, in the early 1690s, uh, he suffered from a nervous breakdown. Well, that's a good use of and your time. Slight distancing from reality. Uh, so for like 18 months, he suffered greatly from insomnia and poor digestion and, uh, irrationality, memory loss and urinary discontinence, <laughs> just to throw some more things in there. That sounds like stress. Yeah. And then off and on after that, he continued to suffer from loss of appetite, depression, withdrawal from friends, apathy, delusions of persecution, uh, what could only be described as bipolarism, uh, tremors, mental confusion were common during this time period. In 1693, he wrote a correspondence which said, Extremely troubled by the embroilment I am in, have neither ate or slept well in the last 12 months, nor have my former consistency of mind. I wonder if he got mercury poisoning or something crazy. That's a good guess. In 1725, he suffered from violent coughs and inflammation of the lungs, and also gout, and also gallstones. My goodness. Uh, yes, and completely unrelated to any of that. So this is a new topic here, not related to that at all. Uh, many of his notebooks contain detailed descriptions of some of his alchemy experiments, such as analysis by taste, uh -oh. in which he would just taste things like mercury, <laughs> That's which he described as strong, sourish, sourish, and ungrateful. Oh, my goodness. Poor have guy. You, have you ever tasted anything that you would define as ungrateful? Uh, no, maybe <laughs> coffee. <laughs> coffee. <laughs> Shh, coffee's good. Uh, he also sampled gold, lead, arsenic, you know, all the good flavors. Uh, <laughs> all the hard metals that <laughs> make you sick. All the hard metals, yes. So it was that, uh, not directly related to that, but in March 31st of 1727 in London, 
After a prolonged and painful several days, uh, he died due to gallstones, of all things. What an intelligent person to just be tasting stuff. I mean, they didn't know it at the time, I guess, right? But I feel like that should be a thing even then. Like, don't just put things in your mouth. Yeah, like, right? don't lick the things your weapons are made out of. Like, even, like, in... <laughs> they make weapons out of mercury. I was just saying metals, <laughs> you arsenic. know. Do you have an arsenic sword? I do. <laughs> don't be jealous. Mercury nunchucks. <laughs> so... Uh, England gave him a state funeral, which was the very first state funeral to ever be given someone whose attainments were purely of the mind, right? He didn't necessarily do a thing. Most oh, of his so contributions... a state's funeral is a good thing? Yes, a state funeral is a good thing. Oh, okay. Not like uh, he was too poor and couldn't afford anything, so the state buried him in a plain box. That not, is exactly not, what I, I was thinking. It is. No, this is like, uh, you know, the casket sits in front of, like, the capital like here you know we do a state funeral uh so he was laid to rest uh after eight days of being on display which is something i don't get like i know that we nowadays we can we've got like chemical embalming and all this stuff that you can do to preserve the body but like in 1600s can you imagine a body just sitting there for eight days yeah no that's scary yeah uh but they buried him below a carved uh, monument of the figure of newton uh, and a celestial globe with a path of a 1680 comet inscribed in Latin with strength of his mind, almost divine. Oh, that's nice. And mathematical principles, peculiarly his own. <laughs> I'm not, that, that sounds like a reverse compliment or like an almost compliment. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, but uh, interestingly enough, Newton's grave was uh, later dug up and pieces of his hair were tested. Uh, which contained four times the amount of lead, arsenic, and antimony, uh, and 15 times the amount of mercury that a normal sample should possess. That makes Uh, sense why he got so sick. There was definitely evidence of chronic mercury poisoning. Uh, But yeah, like I said, he uh, he was quite rich when he died, and his assets were spread equally among his half nieces and nephews, uh, and his home from his childhood, you remember, uh, Wolfsrup Manor? Yes, I remember. Uh, that was given to his heir-in-law. What is that? I have no idea. I have never heard that term before in my life. Interesting. Uh, but the name of his heir-in-law was John Newton. Oh, well, at least he was a Newton. Yeah. And John Newton, after six years of what, and this is a direct quote, cockfighting, horse racing, drinking, and folly, end quote, was forced to mortgage and then sell the mansion before dying in a drunken accident. Oh, all so right. So there is that. <laughs> beware the drunken accidents. Yes, beware the drunken accidents. Don't lick mercury. Don't lick mercury or taste arsenic. No matter how much you think it's going to be good or what sort of experiments you're doing, don't taste your science. No. Unless no. it's food science, then you could probably taste it. You probably don't want to sniff most of your science no, either. No, they even have rules. Like, when I was in chemistry, and everybody should know this, like, they teach you how to properly, like, kind of wave the smell towards your face if you have to smell something instead of just taking, like, a big, like, I don't know, face snort. full of whiffing. <laughs> of, of the... Of the stuff. And they have like hoods now mm-hmm. to catch all of the bad stuff yeah. and take it away. You know what they didn't teach me though? The Not proper, to lick stuff? The proper tasting methodology uh, <laughs> for for tasting your experiments. So I guess. I think the tasting died with Newton. That they could be. That could be. Uh, there was a lot of stuff that I left out of the show. Like I said, uh, we, we did three full episodes and uh, 
there are some other seriously interesting stuff to go. You can go look up on your own. Like I said, like his views on religion are pretty interesting. Some of the other stories of things that he did that weren't uh, directly related to stuff that we were talking about. But I highly recommend the following books for further reading. Uh, Isaac Newton, a biography by Estefania Winger. And Newton, Secrets of the Universe by Alexander Kennedy. Biographies of Scientists, Isaac Newton, Hourly History. Uh, be warned, as Carrie said, that does not have page numbers. No page numbers. <laughs> no page numbers. The uh, table of contents is blank. It's just got like the names, like the words written, and there's no page so numbers. Like, these are in here somewhere. Good luck. <laughs> uh, also, Isaac Newton, written by Jay's Gleck, or sorry, James Gleck, which is a uh, Pulitzer Prize finalist. That was a pretty good one, actually. It was the best written one. Uh, not all of these are written extremely well. I think some of them are, and by not written extremely well, I just mean like format. A uh, lot of good information, though. And then lastly, translation of Newton's book, The System of the World, was pretty good. So I highly recommend that. Yeah, that sounds great. And I kind of want to leave, uh, did you, is there anything else that you want to say on Newton? I don't think so. I think I'm all Newtoned out. All, you're Newton, you're full of Newton? Yep. All right. Well, I wanted to kind of leave off on a quote from Newton. Uh, it says, and this is kind of his self-reflection, right? I don't know what I may seem to the world, but as to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy, playing on the seashore and diverting myself and now and then finding a smooth pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. Aw, that's deep. Yep. So that's Newton. I hope you enjoyed our three-part series. Uh, we will probably be doing other science bios in the future, uh, but we'll, we'll spread them out uh, and not do too many of them in a row so we can get some other science and interviews and stuff going on. Uh, remember, next week we've got uh, some detailed information on NASA's Day of Remembrance on the Apollo Challenger and uh, Columbia disasters. Uh, but that's uh, that's all I've got for this show. Anything else you want to say to our listeners? Goodbye, listeners. Goodbye, listeners. Well, that was our last episode on Sir Isaac Newton, physicist, mathematician, Lucian chairholder, president of the Royal Society, and master of the mint. There are so many awesome and amazing stories out there of scientists, especially during this time period. You heard a bit of interaction between some of them in the show. I highly encourage you to pick up a book and read about the life and times of some of our world's greatest minds and explorers. Also, a little tidbit for you, Stephen Hawking, when he passed away this last year, was laid to rest between Sir Isaac Newton and Charles Darwin at the Westminster Abbey in London. So if you're in that area, you should swing by and check that out if you can. I'm not sure if they let you go in, but I'm pretty sure you can. Uh, if you do, take pictures, send them to me. It'd be awesome. Uh, but that's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember to check us out on facebook.com slash dash of science. You can follow me on Twitter at Physicist Chris. Also, check out some of our live streams on twitch.tv slash physicist Chris. Subscribe to the show at any of your favorite podcasting apps and chat with us on Discord. The link is in the show notes. Uh, also, please check out our sponsors, Coffee Gator, Adventure Dice, discount code QUARK. Uh, also, Player One Coffee, referral link is in the description. Or support us directly at patreon.com slash dash of science. Have a wonderful rest of your week, citizen scientists. And remember, live, learn, build. Also, don't lick the mercury.
A Dash of Science is written and produced by Five Hertz Labs. Music was written and produced by Ghost Tube Music. A Dash of Science is a proud member of the Podfix Network. This was a podcast from the Podfix Network. You can check out more shows like it at podfixnetwork.com.